Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 6. As we return once again to the words of Jesus in this wonderful famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain as Luke describes it, this level place at the mountain where Jesus had called his disciples to himself and then began to teach his disciples among a horde of people, throngs of people following him from all over Israel and even beyond. We'll read verses six, uh, chapter 6, verses 20 through 26 this morning, and we will look at the remainder of this text in verses 24 through 26. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Easy to sing, somewhat easy to mean, a little bit harder to play out in practice. We are tempted constantly with the riches and the goods and the prosperity of this life and the praise of men. There are countless warnings against the temptation to these things and the love of these things in the Bible. We are constantly drawn toward those things which pertain to a life well lived in this life. We want things to be good. We want our lives to be blessed. And we often just simply assume that blessing in this life is what true blessing is. But Jesus wants to take this concept and turn it on its head. He wants us to understand that whatever kind of life you live now in terms of your prosperity is basically irrelevant when it comes to what your eternity will be like. And that we shouldn't allow ourselves to be blinded either out of seeing only the poverty that we're in or of seeing only the riches that we're in. Uh, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be blinded by these circumstances to the more important spiritual realities of what our heart condition is and our standing is before God and what that says about the more important life of the life to come. This life has an end date. We know that one day it will be over for all of us. And if we're wise, we'll think about that so as to properly value the things that we might accumulate in this life so that we might even evaluate the reputation and the favor that we have in this life. And while this passage doesn't tell us that we should actively try to make our lives worse here and now, it does tell us that what we have and the way our life goes now is no determinative indicator 
of what actually our eternal reality will be. And so we come to this text again this morning, having looked already at what Jesus told us about uh, the blessing for people who are God's people despite their poverty and despite their terrible circumstances. And we look at the other side of the coin now of what it looks like for those who are well off. Those who, as is implied here, have no spiritual reality to them, no believing heart. That they're not those who follow the Lord Jesus and they're not those who are saved, but they might think things are fine because everything is going well for them in their lives. And so it is addressed to potential unbelievers among Jesus' followers at this time, those who were his disciples, those who found themselves in good circumstances. And thus it has a lot of relevance for us today. Anyone who would say that they are a follower of Jesus Christ, but who is in danger of being blinded by their material and circumstantial goods, by their, uh, by their prosperity rather, needs to pay heed to this warning. Anyone who may be tempted to think that things will just be fine as long as they can become wealthy, as long as they can become well off, as long as they can take care of their earthly circumstances, needs to take heed to what Jesus says here. Because Jesus gives us what we will call a warning of woe for the well off. A warning of woe for the well off. To begin with, what we want to look at is what he means by this. What is the meaning of Jesus' warning? Well, it's very simple. He says, woe. Four times, woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are well-fed, woe to you who laugh now, woe to you when all men speak well of you. And of course, we know that this is not the, wow, that's impressive kind of woe, like, whoa, you have a ton of money. This is the woe of calamity. The word means alas. It implies suffering and pain and distress. It implies hardship. And while it's not technically a strict warning, it kind of actually means more like, oh no, look out for what's coming. Uh, it is implied here that if these things describe you that are in these verses, you should watch out. Uh, we can find this because in verse 23, he gives some instructions for people who are in bad circumstances, but are blessed. And he says, you should be glad uh, you should rejoice. You should leap for joy. If your circumstances may be bad, but your spiritual realities and your eternal future is good and blessed, then you can rejoice. But here we find in light of the coming woe that when people are in these good circumstances, but they have no spiritual life and no reality of salvation before the Lord, then they should watch out. They should not rejoice and leap, but they should grieve and they should humble themselves and cry out to God that things might change. This is what it means when he says, whoa, problems are coming. You should do something about it. He's speaking here then to his disciples and he's speaking to some specific people among those who are following him and listening to him. And so next we move to consider the audience of Jesus' warning. The audience of Jesus' warning are, first of all, those who have material wealth. There are four descriptions here of people. One of them is those who have material wealth. He says in verse 24, woe to you who are rich. Those who are rich, those who have an abundance, those who are wealthy. Now, when he says woe to those who are rich, as we've learned from the first part of the section, he is not referring to everyone who is rich 
without exception, but he has in his crosshairs uh, those who are only rich, those who are only prosperous materially. That is to say, all they have is money. All they have is what they have in this world. Because, he says, you are receiving your comfort in full. You have a problem, which is that you have comfort and you are rich and you are well off, but this is all you get. And one day it's going to run out. One day you are going to have an expiration date on your material goods. They're all on loan only for as long as you live. You, he says, are receiving your consolation, your comfort in full. Now, I want to go ahead just up front and address this question, which may be in your mind, um, which is, what does it actually mean to be rich? What does it mean to be rich? Well, we live in the United States of America in the year 2024. And what this means is that many of you, many of us were born into situations that would be considered very well off in comparison to most of the world. And, of course, it's also true that in our modern day, we have possessions and conveniences that would really stun people from even just a century ago, not to mention millennia. Um, Yet, in some ways, we need to be careful to assess our circumstances rightly and not to overstate what it means to have what we have, lest we just put ourselves in one category and miss what Scripture actually tells us about ourselves more comprehensively. So, for example, yes, it is amazing to have cell phones and computers, but most of us would also have a hard time getting or doing a job without a functioning device of that kind. The world has become built around doing things this way. Um, It is amazing to have cars with the technology that exists today and to get us from one place to another, to be able to travel a thousand miles in a day in a vehicle that we own. And yet it comes with the cost of gas and maintenance and insurance, not to mention the cost of the car and the taxes that are involved in this. Which is simply to say that just because we have a lot of things doesn't also mean that there aren't challenges that are associated with having those things. Sometimes we begin to feel as if um, because we live in a particular society that we must automatically be rich, quote unquote, and yet at the same time we feel the struggles of having to deal with things that come with also living in a society that is built around those things. Now, this is not to say that we have to indulge in everything that the culture tells us to, but we just need to look the square in the eye and not simply say that because we live in America, we are rich in every way and that we have uh, no category to fit in the first few verses of what Jesus describes here. Many of you perhaps feel this tug in your heart where you say, I have all of this prosperity, but at the same time, I have some of, the, uh, some of the, the feelings that would be expressed by the people who are in the first few verses, those who are poor and those who are weeping and uh, those who hunger now where you feel the difficulty of those things. And so it's okay to take this and say, well, we kind of fit in both categories of this and we need to address the attitudes that come with each one of these. And so you might quibble with some of these things that I've talked about being necessities, uh, this as well as things like modern medicine, which is very powerful and yet very expensive in many cases. You might quibble with, uh, with what I'm, I'm saying as far as what exactly falls under those categories. But in addition to being very prosperous, our society is also very expensive. 
Um, and so uh, when we think about being rich, um, unfortunately, there are some people who have uh, come out, sermons and books and other things like that, who have given a very unhelpful, broad brush sweep against American prosperity and essentially say that if we want to be godly, then we're going to give everything away and we're going to get rid of anything that is, uh, that is higher in terms of its sophistication and its expense than maybe the least prosperous nations out there. And then we can really live faithful Christian lives. Either we give it all away and move to Africa, or we fall into the category that Jesus describes here of having woe upon ourselves. And I would argue that it's just not quite that simple. And yet at the same time, we do need to recognize that whether it is just the way that things are and things cost a lot or not, when we do have many material goods and opportunities and experiences, we are in the dangers that Jesus has described here. And we do need to say that these are the kinds of things that can blind us to our spiritual situation and we can begin to live for the here and now in ways that are eternally dangerous for us. So we need to make sure that we assess ourselves rightly and heed the warning that Jesus is describing here. So he speaks to those who are rich, those who are rich. He also speaks to those who have full stomachs. Those who have full stomachs, those of you who are well-fed now, they're never hungry. They never go without food. They have plenty to eat. And generally speaking, in our society, it's almost the opposite problem, which is there's food everywhere. I have a hard time going anywhere, it seems, without some kind of dessert being available and something of a hard time going anywhere without eating that dessert. We have a lot of food. This is almost hard to, to understand and identify with at all. The idea of not being well fed, of at least not being able to just grab something, to grab some rice or some beans or some kind of food and just be able to eat enough to where you're not hungry. Uh, this, is, uh, this is hard for many of us to identify with. And yet he does make sure that we are not content with just having enough to eat, with just having food to satisfy us now because one day, if we're not in Christ, that will come to an end. He describes also those who have pleasant lives. Those who have pleasant lives. Woe to you who laugh now. Such people's lives are free of care. It's, of course, the opposite of sadness. Uh, laughter is the typical emotion that you generally can't have when things are really bad. Although Proverbs does tell us that even in laughter, the heart may be sorrowful. There is the opportunity to laugh and we do have the capacity sometimes to paper over what's really going on. But Jesus is talking here about just the general disposition and attitude of your lives. And it is so easy for us to live for these things. We want pleasure. We want happy endings. We like comedies. We like fun times with friends. We don't want to take certain things too seriously. Problems are sort of whisked off and, and our culture just puts those things out of sight and tries to get them out of mind. Even the hardships of uh, people going through their last days and of suffering and dying so often takes place outside the scope of what people normally see in their day-to-day -day lives and is pushed into specialized places. And I'm not saying anything against the benefits that may come with having specialized care and so on, but these things, we just don't want to deal with hardship in our lives. We like prosperity, we like joy, we like laughter. And Jesus said, if that describes you and that is all your life is about, then don't be content with that because it's all going to come to a terrible end. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And then he gives a warning to a fourth group of people. There is overlap among all of these, but he warns those who have favor with 
everyone. Those who have favor with everyone. Now I want to describe what he is talking about here and then spend a little bit of time considering why we might be drawn to this, what we should do about it. So he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. This doesn't have to be literally every single person, but basically everybody that you know speaks well of you. People think of you and they, they talk well. They don't criticize you. They say, this is such a nice guy, such a good guy. This guy is someone that, that is just on the positive end of the spectrum. The people doing this behavior are the general populace, the general populace. And the question is, what do they think about you? Do they think of you sometimes, some people, as, you know, that guy is a little bit too serious about his Christianity. And that guy is kind of a zealot. That guy is kind of a fundamentalist. And hopefully we're not using that word or they're not using that word in the truest sense of the word. But that they're using it kind of as a, hey, you know, this guy just kind of takes Jesus a little bit too seriously. Maybe he should chill out. And that's really what society in our day seems to want. They want someone to just be chill. Just be chill, be laid back. And that doesn't mean the kind of chill where you don't start unnecessary trouble. What that means is, you know, just kind of let me be me. You do you and I'll do me and we're just fine. We're not going to upset anybody. We're not going to get in the way. We're not going to bring our standard of gospel witness and Christianity from the Bible upon you. You're just going to let me live my life. That's the kind of person that I want to be around. That's a good guy right there. That guy is chill. Jesus says, woe to you when people talk about you in this way. Why? Well, you are in a bad stream, historically speaking. Because he says in verse 26, their fathers, these people that speak well of you, used to treat the false prophets in the same way. The false prophets. This is an exact parallel statement to what he said in verse 23. He says, in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Here it says, in the same way their fathers used to treat the False prophets, literally the only difference in the underlying language is that he uses the words false prophets instead of the word prophets. Now, there may be something here as to the root cause of this, and there probably is. This is why Jesus is talking about this, which is that you are suffering this mistreatment not just by mere circumstance or by having to run into the wrong crowd, but what's implied here in following after either the false prophets or the prophets is there's something about how you represent God, something about what you communicate about God, something about what you say or imply about God and men and sin and repentance and salvation. You're representing Jesus to people in some way. And so how you treat them will be a reflection of what you believe about the gospel. And there's sort of a, one, one way or another, there's going to be an aura that is given off to them of, you know, this is what this person is telling me about God. And so they may or may not like that. They may really dislike the fact that they feel judged by the fact that you're telling them that they're sinners and that they need to repent. They may not like that you're so devoted to Christ that it implies something about their way being wrong, which of course it is if it's not following Jesus. There are just things that you say and that you do that are going to upset some people if you're following Christ faithfully. So the question then is, which stream do you want to be in? Which stream do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the stream of the real prophets? or that of the false prophets? Easy question, isn't it? Yes, I wanna be like someone who belongs to God and is used by him, just like a prophet. Except then you start to think about how they were treated. Then you start to think about what 
happen to them? And then you say, maybe, I'm not so sure. They were, verse 22, hated and ostracized and insulted. And they were scorned as evil. Their name was brought under reproach. Why do certain people get this kind of treatment? This uh, universal favor on the one hand that he is describing. Why, why does this happen? And why is it such a problem? Well, the passage tells us, and you'll notice that the first three warnings only mention that the circumstances exist, but they don't say how things came to be that way. Here, Jesus leans into the fact that the circumstances may be a little bit of a product of sinful conduct. This is how you get this way. And as one writer has helpfully said, quote, this can scarcely happen apart from some sacrifice of principle. This can scarcely happen apart from some sacrifice of principle. That is to say, if you're being spoken well of by everyone, everyone, what are you compromising in order to make that happen? What are you not saying in those hard moments? What are you choosing to avoid when it's brought up? What are you not saying that you know the Bible says, but that you're just not willing to speak? And it's not because you say, hey, this isn't the exact right time to bring every bit of scriptural artillery to bear upon this conversation. And you pick and choose exactly which ones you're saying. It's that you just shrink back and shrink back and shrink back because you want people to like you. Jesus says here, it's really, really hard to be liked by everyone while being a righteous person. You pretty much have to share the character of the false prophets and their message as well in order to pull this off. Now, think about this then. Think about how strongly our society encourages being well-liked, the favor of everyone. They use the language of people being cool or people being not cool. They use concepts that are associated with the idea of fitting in. There's political correctness, and then there's also the response to political correctness, where you can find that you fit in with one or the other, but at least you've got a tribe. Then there are selfies, and uh, not just of you, selfies of yourself and other people. There are, uh, there are filters that are applied to these photos so that you can make sure that people think that you are at the peak of beauty. Why? Because you want the approval of other people. The prominence in our society of cosmetic surgery and things like this. And while not all of these things entirely demand ungodliness, we have to recognize that the culture is one of being approved and thought well of and spoken well of by other people. At the same time, though, this isn't really different in its essence than most other cultures throughout history as well. But we just need to be alert to where our culture may tempt us to these things or where we might try to go along with the culture and with people in order to stay in their favor. So maybe we shrink back from truth when we should have spoken it. Maybe we tell people uh, that things are okay, that God says are not okay. We just need to be aware of it. So we should be aware of the deception and the seduction of the favor of man. On many levels, of course, this is kind of how we want to be treated. Nobody wants to be disliked in, a, in the, the essence of it, in and of itself. It's not fun for people not to like you. You might, you might have some bigger picture idea where you say, well, I know why they don't like me and I'm okay with that and I feel better about it because I know that I've been faithful. But in and of itself, you, you would prefer that they don't just hate you for no reason or that they don't just hate you and want to come after you. And we all know the temptation, you know, maybe when you find out, hey, someone's talking about me. 
you listen in. You're, am I, or what are they saying about me? Are they saying something good? Are they saying something bad? Or maybe you're just hoping they're saying something about you at all because you want their attention. Uh, you hear something that is not bad and you say, oh, this is a relief. Or maybe you're looking for it and you say, well, yeah, maybe they're talking something good about me. What did they say? What were they talking about? Did they notice the thing that I did that was impressive? We like it when people speak well of us, and rarely do we want people to speak evil of us. But it is a temptation. Now, I want to speak to one more side of this temptation as well while we're here, uh, which is that there is a uh, deception concerning all men speaking well of us that can be pursued in a very tricky way because we put it under the guise of maintaining a good testimony. We put it under the guise of the many New Testament commands to live above reproach and to have a good reputation with people outside the church. For example, 1 Timothy 3.7 says that an overseer must have a good reputation with those outside the church. We read in Titus 2 verse 8 uh, that someone is to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame. And then he says in verse 10, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And then in 1 Peter 2.12, we find this instruction, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What you may notice there is that there is a concern that the New Testament has over and over again for the way that unbelieving people think about believers. It does actually matter. We don't simply say something like, well, it doesn't matter what the world thinks about us. They're just a bunch of pagan unbelievers anyway. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we actually obtain favor in the sight of other people? And will it be universal? Well, first of all, Jesus warns us here, it's not going to be universal. It just isn't. There will be people who don't like you no matter what you do and no matter how fully you fulfill these commands to have a good reputation with outsiders. But what these instructions and others like them are talking about is the kind of thing that goes along with still being faithful to the word of God and faithful to the truth. The reason why that you are beyond reproach or people don't uh, criticize your behavior or you have a good reputation is because you're godly and because you're following biblical wisdom. It's good deeds, it's the absence of hypocrisy, and it is being wise because God knows more than anybody about this world and he gives us wisdom in his word. So that when we follow his instructions, that is going to be in the sight of many people very impressive in a certain way. So what we do is we come to this and say, the, the path to a good reputation that the Bible wants us to have, that kind of good reputation is godliness and biblical wisdom. It is not compromising the truth in order to curry enough favor with unbelieving people to maybe later tell them the truth that we didn't want to tell them in the first place. If everybody likes you and you're willing to do that kind of thing, watch out. But we're tempted to think that we can prevent hostility against ourselves as Christians if we just have a certain approach to our interactions. Namely, we're tempted to think that if we can just be winsome enough that we will overcome everyone's objections. Or if we can just be good enough at what we do, if we can be the best model citizens 
or if we can just be kind and if we can speak in a certain way and if we can entertain arguments in a certain way, then we will be able to prevent the kind of hostility that anyone would have against us as Christians. Now, there is a lot of truth to the idea that um, we need to consider how we approach unbelieving people. And we need to approach people with godliness and with kindness and with love and with, with humility. That is true. But when you get right down to it and actually follow biblical instruction, when you actually proclaim the word of God that doesn't let people off the hook, and when you proclaim the gospel in an exclusive way, you're not going to be able to find favor with everyone, no matter how quote-unquote winsome you are. And we often want this, and we go down this path and are tempted to this because we think we can have our cake and eat it too. We think we can be faithful to the gospel, and we found the loophole that enables us to have everyone like us. That's what we want. That's what we are tempted to do. We can preach the gospel, people can be saved by it, and we get to have a pretty good life where most people like us. And the Christian world, unfortunately, is always trying to come up with new ways to do this, ways to curry favor with the world. If we can't force our way to it through being in power over the world, then we'll try to do it through being a certain kind of person that the world is very pleased with, that the world likes, will be like them. And we will be just enough where we're accommodating to them enough to where they're not going to come after us. We're always tempted to do this. And we have to heed Jesus' warning here, which tells us that if everybody likes us, we are in big trouble. So what describes these people then in verses 24 to 26? Overall, they're carefree. They're living the good life. Everything is good. They're the kind of people who have pretty good careers. And they go hang out. And they watch football on the weekend. And they mow the yard. Nobody really gives them that much trouble. They go on some vacations. They just live their life. Life is pretty fun. And that's about it. And Jesus has a warning for people like this. And it's not just because they are rich but it's because they are well off only in physical terms. And Jesus wants to warn them that is not enough. Why does he issue the warning then? Why does he issue the warning? I want to consider this from several angles. We'll call this the reasons for Jesus' warning. Why is he warning them? Well, first of all, um, just want to clarify, what is he not warning against? Well, he is not saying that earthly prosperity of every kind is sinful in and of itself. It's hard to be well-liked by everyone um, if you're faithful to the gospel, but there were people in the Bible who managed to enter the kingdom of God by, uh, by virtue of faith in Christ who yet were prosperous in their earthly life. This is not promised to us, but it's not an, uh, a complete and total obstacle. So why does he warn people who are well-off? Why does he warn those who are in situations of earthly Prosperity. I want to give you several reasons. First of all, earthly prosperity is desirable. It's desirable. Very simple. We want it. We would like to have it. He warns us because it's something that we would try to get. It's not like most people are going to have to be warned against, hey, don't go and get rid of everything. You know, don't go and try to be poor. That's pretty dangerous. He warns us against earthly prosperity and its dangers, uh, not against earthly prosperity, but of the danger of what can uh, be involved in that. But just because it's desirable. Uh, secondly, earthly prosperity is not enough. It is not enough. You can have all of these blessings, but they don't get you to heaven. They just don't get you to heaven. Luke 2, uh, 12, 15, 
He said to them, beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus is not giving a warning against having these things. Jesus is warning against a mindset that these things are all you need. Earthly prosperity is simply not enough. A third reason he warns is because earthly prosperity is temporary. It's temporary. And this is at the heart of the warning. Your current conditions may be great. But the problem is it's all going to come to an end. None of this is going to pass through the filter of the judgment of Christ and the last day. So what you are on the inside is what matters. He says, woe to you. Why? Verse 24, for you are receiving your comfort in full. That's a statement about here and now. You shall be hungry, he says. There's a future time coming when things will change. You shall mourn and weep. And then, of course, when God judges, you'll be in the category of the false prophets who will be judged and sent to hell for what they did. Now, this is a warning we need to hear because we are all too easily lulled into a sense of security about what we have here and now. We are better than ever at making our money safe. We know how to diversify. We know how to insure against risks. We know how to utilize purchase protections in case we get a lemon item. We know how to look for quality. But there's going to come a point where it doesn't matter what the amount is of our prosperity and our wealth or even the trajectory of it. Are we getting more and more? Are we building something? Because everything has to pass through the fire of divine judgment. And as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 7, we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. So you can amass everything. You can amass prosperity of all kinds. You can never go a day hungry in your life, and everybody can like you, and your life can be filled with laughter. And yet, none of that passes through the judgment without being touched and evaluated, and we cannot take any of it with us. Jesus warns against earthly prosperity because it tempts to self-reliance. It tempts to self-reliance instead of relying upon God. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, we have a request to God. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? This is the temptation of wealth. It makes you forget that you need God. It makes you stop praying, God, give us this day our daily bread. It makes us begin to think that we can take care of business on our own. It tempts us to be reliant upon ourselves. If you have large amounts of money, if you feel like everything is good in your career and you've earned your way to a certain point where you don't have to worry about that, this is the temptation that this writer of Proverbs warned against and was aware of. He didn't want to deny God and say, who is the Lord? I don't need him. Earthly prosperity also, fifthly, blinds to spiritual realities. It blinds to spiritual realities. It can make us only think about what we see and feel and hear and smell what we, what we sense with our senses and not what is true through the eyes of faith. We need the word of God to come in and to tell us 
the kinds of things that are actually true in a more reliable way than what we can experience with our senses. But earthly prosperity puts a really, really big kind of blurry filter over what, what is the reality behind it. It's like driving through the fog. You can barely see anything in front of you, and it's really hard, and you have to strive and struggle to make it out. Earthly prosperity is very dangerous for this reason, and it can be overcome, but when you have all of this right in front of your face, it can be very difficult to see the things that are true on an eternal scale, the things that matter the most. And then, number six, earthly prosperity is no indicator of true blessing. It's no indicator of true blessing. This is why Jesus warns people who have it, because they might come to think that they are truly blessed. The blessing comes despite circumstances for those who belong to Christ. It does not come because someone has temporal, earthly prosperity and blessings now. So how do we respond to Jesus' warning? He warns what will happen. He warns about the dangers of riches and earthly prosperity. What is the response to Jesus' warning? I want to give you a few We ask the question, what should we do in light of this? Do we say we're wealthy and well off? Uh, Okay, what next? Should we give them all away to someone? Should we give them to charity? Well, then you're left with this spiritual hot potato kind of problem where now they're the ones who are in trouble with Jesus until maybe they just throw it all into a hole and nobody has anything anymore. This is not the way. Do we refuse the income? What do we do? What does the Bible say? tell people who are wealthy what does the bible tell people who are rich and who are well off first of all repent and believe the gospel repent and believe the gospel this is the universal command to all people everywhere regardless of your circumstances it cuts through the circumstances it puts everyone on a level playing field before god because at the end of the day that's where we are When it comes to God, God is not impressed with your money. God is not impressed with your well-off circumstances. God only cares about how you respond to him and to Christ. And so Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We should come across Jesus' warning of blessing and woe and say that Jesus is talking here about a time when we will be judged according to our response to God, to his word, that we will be judged even according to our deeds, that we will be judged and sent to hell if we have not repented, but that we will find eternal blessing in the kingdom of God if we have trusted Christ, regardless of what our circumstances look like here and now. Repent and believe the gospel. Secondly, a response is, beware the deception of prosperity. Beware the deception of prosperity. Know that it very, very easily draws you astray. You have to anchor yourself in the truths of what this passage and others like it are saying. You have to realize that it can be very easy for your eyes to just follow after the things that are in front of you in this world, the things that you can see and possess. 
We have to be aware of how they might influence our hearts to think that everything is okay. How we might grow to love comfort in a certain way that we don't want to give up. We need to beware the deception of prosperity. We need to reject the temptation to self-sufficiency. To self-sufficiency. We have enough. We have done what we're supposed to do. We have worked hard to earn this. We have, we have denied ourselves in certain ways to get to this position. We have what we need. We are sufficient. We don't really need God. We don't need his help. We have what we need. Reject the temptation to self-sufficiency. Fourth, value eternal life over temporal life. Value eternal life over temporal life. This is a great challenge because it calls us to act not only with delayed gratification in view, but also to act by faith rather than by sight. We have to be willing to say that what matters is eternal reward, not what we can get here and now. And there's a hesitancy in our hearts to give up earthly goods in favor of eternal treasure. We want to hang on to things. It costs too much to give that up. And of course, the more you have, the greater the cost. The price of admission may be, even though you can't purchase it, the price of admission to the kingdom of God may be leaving behind everything you have. There's a man, the rich young ruler that we'll meet later on, but over in chapter 18, Jesus has interacted with him and he doesn't respond well. He goes away sad because he has many possessions and doesn't follow Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now Jesus clarifies later on, it's not impossible because all things are possible with God. But it's very difficult. And so if you have a lot in this life, if your circumstances are good, if you enjoy your life, if you have people that you love, if you have possessions that you wouldn't want to give up, if they provide you a certain degree of enjoyment and security, or at least it feels that way, just recognize how dangerous this is to your willingness to give these things up in favor of eternal treasure. And unfortunately, I, I worry that some of you are going to hear this message from Jesus and then set it aside and decide to live the next year or decades of your life as, as if it doesn't exist. As if he doesn't warn against pursuing the treasures of this world over against what won't come for a while for most of us. It's all too easy to cling to the things that we have here and now and that we know and that we've seen. Jesus says, live and walk by faith, not by sight. Another response that we need to follow, number five, don't neglect the spiritual in favor of the material. Don't neglect the spiritual in favor of the material. Material blessings are often more appealing to us than spiritual blessings. And even when they're not sinful things that we might go after, they're easier to go after them for a lot of reasons. For example, it's what everyone else is pursuing. It doesn't look weird to go after those things. It's perfectly acceptable and normal to pursue material things. Um, we are being sold and there is marketing and advertising that tries to persuade us that this is what we must have. This is what we need. This is what we need to be about. This is what our lives should look like. And by the way, everyone else is doing this too. 
uh, material things are measurable. We can see our progress. We can look and we can say our net worth is moving this way. Our bank account is moving this way. Here's what we have. And we're moving in this direction. We can see the progress. It, it's a little easier to discern than spiritual progress, which is often hidden in certain ways. And then it's, it's tangible. It's tangible. You can touch it. You don't have to walk by faith that what you're doing is worth the effort. On top of this, it often feels like more of an emergency or at least an urgent need to tend toward material matters. And sometimes it is an emergency. And sometimes it does need to be done. If you were to have uh, a life-threatening wound, you need to deal with that and not say, well, I need to go read the Bible right now. You need to deal with those things. And yet, there is almost a limitless supply of what feels like an urgent need in material matters. And so for these reasons and perhaps others, we're going to be tempted to neglect the spiritual in favor of the material. But instead of this, we should store up treasure on earth or on hev in heaven rather than on earth. We should pursue things regardless of whether they offer earthly return. There are times when it's wise to make sure that we do this. You don't simply take a job and say, well, I don't care whether I get paid for this at all. You, if you need money to live on, and most of us do, then you need to make sure that there's money coming for the job that you do. But uh, there, there ought to be things that we are doing that simply don't offer any kind of earthly return, or at least that there is no expectation that they will, just because they offer spiritual growth. Just because God says to do them without any expectation that it will make our lives better here and now. We should pursue spiritual things and not neglect them in favor of the material. And then finally, and we'll spend a little bit more time on this last point. Use your earthly blessings properly. Use your earthly blessings properly. First thing to do here, and I'll have you maybe turn with me to a couple of passages along the way. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Give thanks for what you have. Give thanks for what you have. 1 Timothy 4 describes in verse 3 men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. There are times when we feel bad about being well off. We feel bad about being well off because we say, uh, you know, I just, in comparison to other people in other places, you know, I, I have so much. Like, this is wrong for me to do this. I need to level out the playing field. Well, the first thing when you think about this is to... Uh, to recognize and just understand that God appoints people to live in certain places in certain times. Not that you can't move away, but that he does put people and even nations in certain places in certain times. And that's okay. He says this in Acts 17, verses 26 to 27. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul says here, God appointed when they would live, where they would live. And God did so in order that they might, he says, grope for him and find him, to search for him. And so it might be that you're tempted to feel guilty because 
you're born into a certain degree of prosperity relative to the average person in human history or even today. And when you, when you feel this way, uh, the response is not to say, well, I just need to carry this low-level guilt for my privileges across all of my life. Instead, what you need to do is begin by giving thanks to God for whatever he sovereignly ordained for you to have through means of the circumstances that you were put in that you didn't even choose. Now, of course, this doesn't justify using those things to neglect God or certainly to disobey and to rebel against God. God says here in Acts 17, the point is, uh, according to Paul's words, that we would seek God. Not that we would just take those things for granted and do whatever we want and be arrogant toward other people and mistreat them. That's not it. But instead that we might seek God from whatever circumstances he has put us in. Now, with that said, we do have the freedom to change those circumstances as long as it is within what God sovereignly allows, and that's okay. But we don't have to feel as if we are doing something wrong because we have more than someone else. Then we also need to recognize, as 1 Timothy 4 tells us, that it's not wrong to enjoy what God has given to us, what God has given to us. I've heard many times over the years from Christians who own or experience something that goes beyond the scope of pure, bare-bones functionality in the short-term practical realm. Anything beyond that. And they begin to speak words such as, well, you know, they have to qualify it. Uh, well, we had a gift card, so we were able to do that. Or um, we were able to do this for free or for cheap. Or most of all, we can use this for ministry to other people. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with using things to minister to other people. In fact, we should have that kind of attitude, and I want to talk about that in a moment, where we should take what is ours and use it abundantly for other people. But possessions don't become sinful from the moment that you buy them until the moment someone else who is not in your family uses them. Sofas don't become sanctified the moment that guests sit on them. Cars don't become clean the moment you give someone else a ride. TVs don't lose their unholy status the moment you watch an event with someone from the church. So by all means, uh, be mindful about using what is yours to serve others. And Jesus will have much to say about that. And the New Testament has a ton of things to say about that. But we don't have to, uh, we, we don't have to call it wrong anything and everything that we have or use until those things take place. Instead, he says, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. It's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The response to having possessions and having prosperity is to be thankful to God. Be thankful to God for what you have. Another warning or another response is don't manufacture suffering. Don't manufacture suffering. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 gives this warning. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And what he's saying is abstaining from these things doesn't do anything to make you more or less likely to sin. In fact, poverty can be its own temptation. We read in Proverbs 30 earlier, but the rest of verse 9 in that chapter says, uh, or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. 
There are certain temptations that come with riches, and there are certain temptations that come with lack. And we need to be aware of both of those and not simply think that not having anything and having a hard life of suffering is somehow going to keep us from the desires of our sinful flesh. Another instruction, don't mistreat others with your wealth. Don't mistreat others with your wealth. And if you want some case studies on this, just read about Old Testament Israel. Just go read the prophets and listen to what they have to say about how people use their wealth and to leverage that wealth and to, to uh, mistreat other people to their own benefit. Don't mistreat others with it. James verses five, uh, James chapter 5, starting in verse 4, it says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of one pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. There is a warning of judgment for people who use their positions of power and wealth to mistreat other people. Um, and then one last passage to walk through. Follow, this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Follow the biblical instructions for rich people. Follow the biblical instructions for rich people to the degree that this describes you. To the degree that you say, I am rich in this present world. Then do what Paul tells Timothy here. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. First of all, don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Instruct them not to be conceited. Don't let them think about themselves as if they're better than other people who are not rich. And this can happen all too often with people in the higher levels of society where they think less of the hoi polloi. They think that those people are just peasants who are in their way or who exist simply to serve them. And they think of them as somewhat less than them, even in their humanity at times. These people are not important. I am better than them. Don't be, Paul says, conceited. Secondly, he warns. Don't fix your hope on uncertain riches. He says, uh, instruct them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. It is all too easy when you have a lot to fix your hope on that. If something goes wrong, I can fix it. If something is needed, I, can, I got the money. I'm good. I am, I, everything is fine here and I've stabilized this and I don't need to worry about anything. He says, instead, put your hope on God. Thirdly, remember that God is the one who supplies us with enjoyable things. God is the one who supplies us with enjoyable things. It says God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now this would be blasphemy to some who would say, tell these rich people they should not be enjoying their riches. They should be giving it all away. Or they should at least feel bad about using it because after all, they were just born into this or they must have had some way of getting in this position that was bad. Either way, they should just be distributing this out or they should feel bad about using it. But that's not what Paul says. He says he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. To the degree that we are using things appropriately and following the rest of the biblical instructions for what we have, it is not wrong to enjoy whatever it is that is in your possession. He says, do good, verse 18, do good and be rich primarily in good works. To be rich, what's implied here is that you are not rich primarily in material possessions, but in what is more important good works. That's what you need to think about and prioritize. But then he says, here's what you do 
want to consider about not keeping it all. Be generous, he says. Be generous. Be the kind of person that is known for generosity. Be the kind of person who is willing and active in giving away out of your store. Be generous and be ready to share. A contrast, of course, to the idea of simply giving everything away in one fell swoop. But he says that the heart ought to be, I am ready to give at all times, in all places, to whatever opportunity, whatever person, whatever need, I am generous and I'm ready to share. This is what should define anyone who classifies as rich. And in the final instructions, store up earthly, excuse me, store up heavenly treasure. Store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. And then remember what life really is so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Not the kind of life that is held by those that Jesus declares a woe upon. Not the kind of life that consists of earthly laughter, earthly wealth, earthly food, earthly popularity, but instead taking part with the prophets, with the Lord Jesus himself, and with all the faithful in the kingdom of God. This is what life really is, and this is what we should be seeking, regardless of our circumstances. Let's pray together as we close. God, thank you for what you have given us. Thank you for all that you have provided for us, uh, the circumstances that you've placed us in on a material and a, and a situational level. We thank you for all the good things you've given us. We cry out to you for our eternal need. We thank you that you have met that in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.